Well, if you're a human being living on this planet, you probably have experienced losing something you love. I know this because I'm raising a toddler who feels like she's losing something she loves whenever anything is taken away from her. As a parent, it can be tricky to navigate these moments. You want your child to be happy because, well, you love them. And sometimes you want them to be happy because you're on the phone or at a store and you're just trying to avoid a scene. And so you have this constant battle. Do I give in and give them what they want? Or do I follow through? Sometimes it's a no-brainer. Oh, you want those scissors? Well, I can tell you really want them. I mean, no, right? Scissors, more clear-cut. But animal crackers, that gets a little trickier. By the way, animal crackers really feels like a misleading term. They're cookies, right? <laughs> I feel like the creators of animal crackers really knew what they were doing, just ignoring the cookie part. In truth, our daughter Lake really is a happy little girl. And I've been so grateful for how easygoing is. Even though I'm learning as she gets older, she's also rather strong-willed at times. So she has her share of dramatic moments. And the truth is, I feel like I kind of get it. It's not easy navigating this world for any of us, and especially those of us who are new to the world and learning everything for the first time. The times that I'm not flat out frustrated, I kind of feel like I get toddlers. I feel like they react in ways we non-toddlers sometimes wish were socially acceptable. Look, sometimes I wanna throw myself on the ground, roll around and just cry. Now, I've actually had my share of those moments. Most of the time they're happening internally, but every once in a while those internal feelings come out in big external ways. Maybe you can relate to moments like that. We grieve losing the things we love. And there's lots of things that we lose in life that we love. Homes, jobs, pets, friendships, and yes, even scissors and animal crackers. We grieve relationships ending. We really grieve the death of those we love. The loss of life just never feels right or okay. Sometimes I think we know the end of something is coming, like a graduation. Sometimes we choose something to end, even though we may be terrified. And sometimes the end of something completely takes us off guard and we had no choice of the matter. Any of these can be hard in their own ways for different reasons. Whatever the loss is that we're experiencing, it's typically followed by some form of grief. And because loss is so universal, so is grief. Maybe you've heard of the five stages of grief. They were developed in 1969 by Swiss-American psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her book on death and dying. Her observations actually came from years of working with terminally ill individuals. The five stages that she identified are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now, grief is different for every person. She's sure to note that. And different stages can come in different orders and stay for different lengths of time but they're pretty spot on. And I've actually found that knowing these stages has helped me during different seasons of loss. When we grieve, some sometimes it feels like our life is coming to an end. And it's partly because in some ways the life we knew before is coming to an end. And sometimes our bodily response feels like it's telling us something's very wrong. And so we can be tempted to grab back onto the past or keep hold of the things we love even when they're gone or it's time to let them go. Grief can be very healthy because certain kinds of attachments are healthy. 
But what's the difference between grieving the loss of what we love and being held captive by what we love? Well, as I've been thinking and processing all this in my own life, God's actually been meeting me through a surprising passage in scripture. There's an encounter in Luke 18 that Jesus has with a certain man and he's identified as wealthy. And Jesus invites him to let go of something he really loves. Now, by the way this man's identified, you can probably guess what's asked of him. So this passage is about money or material wealth, but we'll learn it's also about so much more than that. So the story starts in Luke 18, verse 18, but I actually wanna pick it up just a few verses before this in verse 15. The context of any story in scripture is super important and we'll see that that's the case here as well. So we're picking up in the second half of Luke's gospel. We've been spending this whole year in the gospel of Luke and this season in particular, looking at the practices that Jesus teaches, practices that may feel like loss, like fasting, but that can lead to a richer life. The story takes place at the end of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, and the next chapter begins the telling of Jesus' final weeks before his death. Every part of scripture is intentional and important, but I always tend to lean in extra to the stories that happen towards the end of Jesus' final days. And so leading up to the story we're about to look at, Jesus is teaching on what the kingdom of God is like, and he tells a couple parables to illustrate what he's talking about and what it looks like to pursue it. It's like a widow crying out persistently for justice. It's like a tax collector beating his chest before God, crying out for mercy. And then the text picks up here in verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. We'll come back to this, but note that this happens just before this next encounter. There's something about children and babies in particular that Jesus highlights about what it means to receive and experience the kingdom of God. So the text continues in verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we encounter this ruler and he's likely a religious ruler, perhaps a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a, the Jewish religious uh, ruling council. So off the bat, we know this is a respected Jewish man and he brings to Jesus a question. It's a question about what he must do to inherit eternal life or to experience the kingdom of God. Jesus answers, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus' response is kind of curious here. So the man addresses him as good teacher and Jesus immediately seems to have a rebuke for him. What's up with this? So it's important to note that the disciples throughout the Gospel of Luke refer to Jesus as good master. But here, this man calls him good teacher, which is a non-disciple way of addressing Jesus, even though by all other appearances, he's a would-be disciple. And Jesus picks up on this. And further, he picks up on the subtle insinuation this man is making. He's coming to Jesus with a sense of confidence about his standing as a good man. And so Jesus quickly differentiates his goodness from the man's. Jesus is good only because he is God. He is true goodness. 
This man's goodness, as we'll find out in a moment, is superficial. He's good only on the outside. So Jesus presses in. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. So Jesus cites commands he knows this man would know. It's interesting that the commands that he cites here all have to do with the love of one's neighbor, of how we are to treat one another. And the man fires back. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. So a Jewish father would have been responsible for his son's actions as a boy up until the age of 13. Today, we mark what is known as the age of accountability at a boy's bar mitzvah. So this man is essentially saying that since 13, he's kept these commands. Let's just name it. This is a pretty bold statement. Who can make such a claim? Remember the widow crying out for justice and the tax collector beating his chest, asking for mercy? Yeah, so, so far this story is a little different than that. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So Jesus digs deeper. He doesn't argue with the man or counter his claims, but he challenges him. And this challenge he gives him, he does not give of all his disciples, which I think is something important to note. What Jesus is not saying here is that the act of giving everything away to the poor is a condition of following him. So why does Jesus ask this of this man? This is a really big challenge Jesus asks of him. This is what Jesus says this man must do to inherit the kingdom of God. And yet, just earlier, Jesus said these babies will inherit the kingdom. Babies do nothing except be dependent on their mom. Babies don't have a list of laws that they've kept. So this is not about doing things to earn standing with God. This is about a matter of the heart. The dependent, those in need, they know something of God's kingdom. That the self-sufficient, comfy in their own list of achievements and financial security just don't get. And so this invitation for this man to give up the things that he loves is an invitation to really know the kingdom of God. Yes, it's a challenge, but more than anything, it's an invitation to let go of the thing that I'm certain brought this man a great deal of security, of respect, of relevance, and power. Verse 23 says, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Read, he couldn't let go of the thing he loved. And this man who had come to Jesus so confident leaves just the opposite. This is a sad story. Lest we think ourselves better than this man, think about the things that you love, that you depend on, and imagine Jesus inviting you to walk away from it, from them, to let it go. I'll be the first to admit that I'd be at a crossroads too. I actually feel like I'm at a crossroads of my own these days just feeling great unrest about what God may be asking of me in this season and in return asking me to let go of. I was thinking back recently to a breakup I had in my early 20s. I had been dating this guy for about four years. We met in college and continued dating through those tumultuous early to mid 20s. If you're in that early to mid 20s right now, I promise it won't be this way forever. 
So we'd spent much of our relationship talking about the future and whether or not we should get married. And the interesting thing is that during those four years, it was almost always me that would be the one raising uncertainty. And so when the day came for us to break up, it shocked my system that he was the one to end it. I remember so well that night he called me to end things. I remember the pain and the anguish. I remember trying to negotiate with him and getting off the phone with this feeling of such finality. And we ended the call and that was it. And I threw myself on the floor crying and heaving full on toddler style. It sounds a little ridiculous now that I'm happily married to another man, (laughs) but in that moment, it felt like a kind of death. I couldn't comprehend losing something, someone who had become so much a part of who I was. Yes, we had ups and downs, but he was my stability. He was a key part of my life. And to come to terms with the fact that he was gone felt truly impossible. Maybe that's a little bit of what this man felt. It felt impossible to let go of this life he'd built. I don't think this man walked away forgetting about this. You know, other gospels who have this story suggest a little more finality to this story, but Luke actually doesn't. It says he was sad. Maybe he just wasn't ready and needed more time. Or maybe he'd never be ready, and he'd continue to be held captive by the thing he loved the most. And that's the difference between grief and captivity, isn't it? We're right to grieve the loss of things we know and love, but grief can turn to captivity when our identity is so wrapped up in the thing or the person that the loss feels like we're losing ourselves. And we have this tendency to do that, to tie our existence, our belonging, our sense of purpose to the things that we love. The text goes on, says Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus now turns to his disciples and he says this, looking at this man as he's likely walking away. The word he uses for the word rich here is actually not a typical word that's used for the word rich. It's a term that's a bit more pejorative than that, which tells us that he's not saying money is inherently evil. But here's an example of money having a hold on someone. And he gives a metaphor here that's intentionally hyperbolic. The camel would have been the largest animal in Israel and the eye of a needle the smallest opening. The point isn't to read too much into Jesus' choice of metaphors. I actually think Jesus is being a little bit lighthearted in what's otherwise a pretty intense moment. But he's also pointing out just how hard it is for those who have wealth to have the posture and heart that's needed to be a true disciple of Jesus. Not because that disqualifies them, but because they become held captive by what they own. Money and material things, they do that and they can have that kind of power over us. There's a book that a friend of mine recommended to me years ago, and I've been too scared to read it until recently because of what it might ask of me. It's a book called Seven by Jen Hatmaker. And the subtitle is An Experimental Mutiny Against Excess, The Seven Experiment. Her book chronicles how Hatmaker and her family took seven months, identified seven areas of excess, and made seven simple choices to fight back against greed, materialism, and overindulgence. Food, clothes, 
spending, media, possessions, waste, and stress. Each month took on one of these topics and would have a practice that would go with it. Only eat seven food. Wear seven articles of clothing. Yes, for a whole month. Spend money in only seven places. Give seven items away a day. Through this process, she learns just how subtly excess had snuck its way into her family. She never thought of herself as rich, and she goes through the seven months. She's sickened by how much she had and how numb it had been making her. Think about how wealth is behind so much of what drives the values we hold. It often drives our motivation to work hard in school. It drives many of our vocational decisions. It drives when and whether to have a family. Now, I'm not saying that financial responsibility and wisdom is wrong. It's wise. And life costs money, let's be honest. My husband actually works with students who are studying to be pastors, and he is wise to raise early with them the financial implications of their decision. How can they take on as little debt as possible? How can they think about alternative ways to make a living that doesn't solely rely on the tithes and gifts of congregations? and that gives them the ability to actually pay off their school loans before their grandparents. The Apostle Paul is an example of this bivocational kind of life. So we're wise to make choices that steward finance as well. But again, how quickly and easily can we shift from being savvy to being captive? This is why Jesus says what he does here. This is why money and wealth is the second most talked about topic in the Bible with more than 2000 references. The most talked about topic in the Bible, if you're wondering, is the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Luke, though, in particular, talks about money or wealth four times more than some of the other Gospels. You know, it's interesting that Luke, perhaps a man of means in his own right as a physician, highlights more than any other Gospel writer Jesus' teachings and warnings regarding money and material possessions. Maybe he himself experienced the block it can be to the road of discipleship. So upon hearing Jesus illustrate how hard it can be for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples respond. In verse 26, the text says this. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? There's desperateness in this question, isn't there? An admission of how humanly impossible it is to do what Jesus is asking. And there is the opening. In the acknowledgement of what is impossible by human standards becomes the possibility for God to do something. Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Think about this brief interaction between Jesus and his disciples and how different it is than the way in which the rich man came to Jesus. He came with confidence and assurance that he had within himself what he needed. It's like all his life had been building a strong foundation founded on his hard work and obedience, his righteousness, his wealth, that he earned, his status and role as a religious leader, all with the intention of being a good person, of maybe providing for a family he had. And in a moment, Jesus asks him to take it all down. You know, I think when we read this story, it's easy to picture this dude, you know, driving down the equivalent of Rodeo Drive in first century Palestine with his designer shades and his hot rod car kind of screeching up to Jesus to ask him a question. 
as observers, we're kind of rooting for this guy to get what's coming to him, right? But what if we have the wrong picture of this guy? Perhaps he's a little bit more like an everyday person. He has good intentions. He works hard. He's respected in his circle. He sacrifices for the people he loves. To give up his money is to give up that position and that power. Or maybe it's a sacrifice that has broader impact than just on his individual self and status. And yet, it's a sacrifice that Jesus asks of him. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much as in this age and in the age to come eternal life. What appears to be an account of a man struggling with the trap of materialism suddenly becomes a lesson on what it means to really follow Jesus. It's never about checking off the boxes. Non-materialistic, check. Gave away all my money, check. It doesn't work like that. It's about following Jesus and what he may be inviting us into, no matter the cost. It's about not allowing the things, even the things we love, to hold us captive, whether it's money or material possessions or relationship or a title, which leads me to an important question. How do we know when God is asking us to give something up or move in a certain direction? It's actually a pretty hard question. And this is in many ways what the whole of scripture is about, lessons in how to hear God's voice. This is certainly what Jesus' teachings in the gospel are trying to point out. They're trying to help us recognize where and how Jesus is moving so we can follow. So there's a couple implications that I'm hearing here. First is start with the foundation of God and God alone. Remember that story about the babies being brought to Jesus and Jesus, despite the disciples trying to usher them away, requests them to be brought to him. And he points out how the kingdom of God belongs to them and that we're to receive the kingdom of God like these babies do. But what do these babies do to receive? Nothing and everything. Their life depends on the life provided for them by their parents. Jesus is inviting us to have that kind of posture in life. Everything I am and have is a gift from God the Father. And if any of it or all of it is taken away, because God is my Father, He will provide. Second implication is to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. You know, we don't have Jesus walking around in the flesh like this man has in scripture, speaking plainly to us about how to follow him. But we have been promised the Holy Spirit. There is a teacher and a master that lives within us. The Spirit can speak through scripture, church community, the people around us, but the Spirit is not relying on any one of these things. The Spirit's been promised to live within you. Jesus says in John 14, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. As I've alluded to, I've experienced the spirit moving within me in really undeniable ways these days. Oftentimes in my life, it's a still small voice that if I listen to enough becomes not so small and not so still. 
These days, it's felt like a full-on wrestling match that's required me to test and pray and wait for what the stirrings really mean. Oftentimes, the Spirit speaks to me through the experience of disruption and desperation, which may be exactly why it's tough for us who have a firm foundation in the things that we build to experience the kingdom of God. We can't hear what the Spirit is saying because we never let ourselves get to a place of desperation, of dependence, which leads to a third point, which is to pursue the values amplified in Jesus' ministry and life. Jesus highlights all throughout the Gospels those who are marginalized, hurting, broken, and desperate. Why? Because Jesus is seeking to bring healing and restoration to this world, beginning with those who have a need and simultaneously those utilizing and using those who also have a need and who know their humble state. Where is the Spirit drawing your attention to those who are helpless, needy, powerless, weak? You know, honestly, too many days I feel too busy or too distracted or too exhausted to do much. I think the mission of Jesus requires so much more than this. God's vision for the church is not to be busy or distracted or exhausted or held captive. So I want to invite you to consider giving something up this week. But before I offer some ideas, I want to give you an opportunity now to listen for what God may be saying to you. I'm going to lead us through a prayer of examine. And it's an examine borrowed from an app that I use called Reimagining the Examine. It's a great resource if you're looking for one. And this particular examine helps to identify what may be holding you captive. Maybe it's a fear, an attachment, a need for control, or an illusion of entitlement that you need to identify and let go of. If Jesus were to invite you to give something up today, what would it be? So just for the next couple of minutes, I invite you to get into a comfortable position if you can. Allow your muscles to relax and your mind to quiet down. You can open your hands, close your eyes, or let your eyes kind of softly gaze on something that's within your view. I'll give you a few seconds to settle in, and then I'll begin. I take a deep breath and ask God to make his presence known around me and in me. I feel this presence and I soak it in. I spend a few moments in gratitude, thanking God for one or two of the blessings, big and small, that I received this past day. I spend a little extra time asking God for a double dose of grace to pray this particularly difficult prayer. It's difficult because it demands that I look at some of the darker parts of my personality. I will ask God to show me ways in which I am held captive by a fear, an attachment, a need for control, or a posture of entitlement. I can easily fall into one of two traps, either denying that I have a problem or unlovingly condemning myself. 
I need the extra grace to allow God to lead in a firm but unconditional way. Looking over the past day, I asked God to show me what fears were predominant in my heart. I try to dig deeply and see what I'm really afraid of. It may not be what I expect because our true fears are often hidden beneath our level of consciousness. As soon as I name that fear, I simply take note of it. Looking over the past day, I ask God to show me any attachments to which I'm clinging lately. I might be overly attached to a person, to an idea, to a behavior, to a role, a certain status. I pay particular attention to my emotional attachment to these things. Once I've identified a particular attachment, I simply take note of it. Looking over the past day, I ask God to show me any, any situation in which I'm trying too hard to exert control. I may be trying to control people, organizations, outcomes, or my own image. It's difficult to admit that I'm controlling, so I ask God for the courage to do so. When I find my particular obsession with control, I simply acknowledge it. Looking over the past day, I asked God to show me if I have any silly notions of entitlement. For example, I worked hard today. I deserve this donut, this drink, this indulgence. Or, I'm an important person. I'm entitled to skip my sh share of the chores, this menial task, the grunt work. Or, I'm the victim here. I have the right to blow up, to pout, to be passive, to feel sorry for myself. If I find a false entitlement, I simply name it before God. Now I place before God the four discoveries I've made. One fear, one attachment, one need to control, one entitlement. I ask God to show me which of the four is most strongly affecting my life right now. I zoom in on that one issue or thing and leave the other three behind. I ask God for insight. I ask for forgiveness for the time when I've let it get the best of me. I ask God to show me what tomorrow may look like if I acted out of freedom from this issue or thing. In specific terms, how would my day be different 
if I didn't allow this to rule me? How would my emotions, thoughts, words, or actions be different? As we close, I take a moment to give this to God. I say, Lord, today I wish to turn over my what to you. I ask you to take over and become the Lord of my life rather than let this issue or thing lord over me. I ask God to help me live my life in freedom of God's mercy. Was there something that God showed you? If not, don't be hard on yourself. Ask God to reveal you, to you in the coming days what might be holding you captive. Maybe there's something specific that you need to fast from this week that's related to whatever came up for you. Or maybe it's helpful for you to take on the fast that I'm going to suggest for us. Given this story and scripture's emphasis on the captivity that money and material things can have over us, might our invitation be to practice simplicity, specifically giving up some of the material wealth, not for the sake of reward, but to be willing to be in a position that is closer to that of desperation and humility than one who is confident and also captive. So here's a fast I wanna invite you into this week. Fast from stuff. There's one of three ways that you can do that, and you may wanna to opt to do all three. So here's the first, fast from buying stuff. You may have some essentials or whatnot that you need to purchase, but can you take a break from all non-essential purchases? Online shopping, those extra things that make it into your grocery cart at the grocery store. Take a break from buying stuff. Or two, fast from keeping stuff. I wonder if you have closets or drawers or a basement or a garage that's filled with stuff that you really don't need and may not really use. Maybe you wanna consider gathering items each day this week that you could give away. Maybe you'll discover that needs arise around you for the very thing that you're giving up. Or maybe there's a local NGO or ministry that you're familiar with that you could donate to. Third, fast from fantasizing about stuff. Now, this one's a little harder to nail down, but maybe you're someone who spends time thinking, dreaming, or fantasizing about what you don't have. That new iPhone, that dream kitchen, the newest American Girl doll, the new PS5. This one's harder to recognize and harder to tame, but maybe it means that you don't spend time daydreaming about it or researching it or spending time this week talking about it. The point, whatever you choose, is to practice not letting ourselves be held captive by our things, even the things we love. And not because that earns us some reward, but because it reminds us that we're dependent on God. And it practices shaking loose the hold that our things can have on us. This is the Christian practice of simplicity, the practice of uncomplicating and untangling our life so we can focus on what really matters. So enter this week or this practice, not with the spirit of duty or legalism, but with freedom as you seek simplicity so that you can focus on what matters most, the invitation that Jesus may have for you. If you have a question or a story or a need or are looking for a step to take, 
Anyone on our staff would truly be honored to hear from you. You can find your preferred way to, of reaching out at grace.org slash contact us, or feel free to reach me uh, directly at lnight at grace.org. May God be with you as he releases the chains of what is holding you captive today. Amen.